all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, and I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me in the studio today, I have Dr. Vanderloo, who is a physician that is going to help me talk about heart health today. So February is American Heart Month, and we tend to see lots of uh, heart-shaped items in the store, but it's not necessarily promoting heart health. It's more for Valentine's, but um, we're glad to be able to talk with you guys today about heart health, about lowering your risk of heart disease, and what those numbers mean. So if you have a question for us today, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. My email is fit at mpbonline.org. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for trudging out in this uh, soggy day I we're know. having. I had a swim here, but it's yeah. good exercise. <laughs> it is. It's great exercise. And exercise <laughs> is important for heart health, I'm That's sure right. we'll talk about. So tell me what you're doing these days. So I'm a board-certified family physician, uh, and I just recently moved back to Jackson. So I did my training at University Medical Center, and I was on staff there for three and a half years. And then I practiced family medicine in Madison for almost three years, and now I'm back in Fondren. All right. And you've got a new clinic in Fondren. It's called Vanderloo Family Medicine. And uh, I, even though I, I practice traditional medicine, I do uh, billing a little bit untraditional. And so I do a direct primary care membership. Okay. And that is where we take out the insurance middleman. And we just do a flat rate fee of $100 if, if that's your thing. And then uh, we also have a membership that you can pay monthly membership. And you have unlimited office visits, no co-pays. And it really helps those who are stuck in the middle, the yeah. marginalized, don't have insurance or don't have enough insurance. Yeah, or and have so, crazy deductibles right. and things like that on exactly. insurance that can really not keep you from getting care, but make you think twice before you go in, exactly. like, do I really need to go get this done on that? So that's excellent. And the direct primary care model is one that's really starting to gain some traction. It is. It is. You know, um, our system is just, it, the costs keep going up, yeah. outcomes don't improve per cost. And so we need to do something different. And a few folks are brave enough to get out there and try to shake it up. <laughs> and try it. Try it. we got to think outside <laughs> the box these days. All right. So I'm sure as a family physician, you see a lot of heart disease. Yes, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. This is number one cause of death. In February, we tend to think about women because we mm-hmm. have the Go Red for Women campaign, but it's the number one killer of men and women. Mm-hmm. And so definitely something that we need to work on and address and, and kind of highlight. So last Friday was Go Red for Women. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me a little bit about why we tend to see a lot of stuff directed toward women in terms of heart health. You know, historically, we've been a male-driven society, unfortunately. In the last few years, we've uh, the medical society has opened up, or medical community has opened up more to, to see a little bit of subtle differences between women and men. And uh, women tend to explain, tend to um, show heart disease in a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're stoic. Uh, you've heard of the man's <laughs> flu <just> before. <laughs> and, uh, and so heart attacks in men are a little bit uh, possibly more dramatic. And so women tend to be a little bit more stoic in that case. <laughs> uh, I 
am neither confirming nor denying that particular <laughs> statement there. I will say I live with three males, though, so take that for what it's worth. So a real, um, you know, and a lot of the studies in the past have been on men, mm-hmm. or in particular white men, and so now we're, the medical community is trying to open it up to women and try to, to show, you know, we have a little bit of subtle differences and to, and to make sure that you take care of yourself because traditionally women take care of other people and don't mm-hmm. always take care of themselves. Yeah, yeah. So when we say the term heart disease, what, what does that really mean? What is heart so, disease? So, you know, your heart is one of the most important. It's hard to, you know, classify what's the most important, right? right? Heart, brain. Well, the heart's pretty darn important. Yeah. Um, and you kind of have two main things I like to tell folks. Plumbing and you have um, uh, electricity. And so electricity is what makes the heart beat in the way it's supposed to be. Your lub-dub, you know, you mm-hmm. hear your heart. And then plumbing is the blood flow to the heart. And you have not only blood flow within the heart, because your heart is a pump that pumps the blood throughout your whole body, but you also have the plumbing to the heart itself, and those are called your coronary arteries. Mm -hmm. And so heart health has to do with making sure that your blood pressure is good, your cholesterol is good, and the heart, the electricity, and the plumbing flow well. Right, because you can have problems in either or or both, right? And so we really are working on looking at making sure that heart muscle and that pump pumps like it should at the rate it's supposed to pump with the force it's supposed to do as well as all those vessels that it's connected to the kind of roadways of your body um, because things can go wrong in either of those areas and so you mentioned blood pressure Mm -hmm. right and that's something that a lot of people are probably familiar with the word blood pressure but I think sometimes we don't really understand what it means. It's just that number that they tell you when you put the th- cuff on your arm and get that squeeze, right? right? But what is blood pressure and what the heck is, like, why is it such a big deal? Right. So blood pressure is literally the pressure in your blood vessels at any given point. And so there's two numbers. The top number is called your systolic number, and that's when the heart squeezes. And when you squeeze anything, obviously the pressure goes up. Mm-hmm. The bottom number is called your diastolic number, and that's when your heart relaxes. And so the gold standard is one. 120 over 80. We measure it in millimeters of mercury, which is kind of the old timey thermometers that, you know, you see at old doctor's offices. Uh, But that's kind of the gold standard. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the ways I like to explain it to folks, just like you said, that pressure when your heart's squeezing and then that pressure when you relax. And we kind of previously just focused on the top number. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I first was in school, that's what we kind of harped on was that top number. But the bottom number is equally as important. And I even like to focus on it, you know, even a little bit more, because if you think about that's the pressure inside those vessels when you're supposed to be relaxing, right. you know. And so if it that number is staying high, then your heart's never really getting that good relaxation that it needs. And so one thing I'd tell folks, I'm like, okay, have you ever done a wall sit or a push-up, right? A wall sit, if you go and sit on the wall and I say, okay, you can just hang out there for the rest of your life, you know, your legs are going to start to quiver and they're going to start to fatigue out and tire because there's no rest period there. And so having that high diastolic number is just like tiring your heart out as well because it's getting no rest or no break period there. Um, So make sure you kind of know your numbers. That's my first tip for heart health is know what you're dealing with, right? All right, guys, if you have a question or a comment about heart health today, we'd love to take that for you. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring So you mentioned a normal is 120 over 80, but lower than that can be okay. It can right? be, right, exactly. So if you normally run low blood pressure, it's not usually a concern. If you have blood pressure that runs low enough to cause symptoms mm-hmm. where you get dizzy, when you stand up, you get lightheaded, you even pass out, that could be something unrelated to high blood pressure or low blood pressure. Uh, but, it, you know, but uh, otherwise, if you have 100 
100 over 60 and you feel great and you're active, that's not a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So that how'd you know my blood pressure? Because that, that's normally what I run about, about 1, 105, somewhere along in there. And that's normal for me. What we want to look at is what is your normal? You know, if you're normally super high on your blood pressure and, you know, we give you some medicines and all those sorts of things and drop you too low, then you may not feel well. You right, know, exactly. um, or if you come and work with us in lifestyle medicine and we, you know, work on your diet and your exercise and all those things, then sometimes we need less medicine. We start to see those blood pressures fall too much and we go, oh, we need to talk with your primary care provider because we need to come off of some of these medications, right. which is the best thing ever. Which, I mean, I know you, most of us historically don't take people off of blood pressure medicines that often. Right. You know, it's what can we add, you yeah, know, exactly. to it. Um, and so really starting to be able to pull people off of medicines. But is just an like you said, watching thing. your diet, you know, yeah. the salt content in your diet, yes. salt is a magnet for fluid. When you add more fluid to a tube the pressure goes up and so if you can cut back the salt if you can exercise and lose weight it puts less pressure on the arteries and the veins and you And you you do so much better there. But blood pressure is only one part of it, right? Right. And there's often some confusion among folks who have other medical conditions like diabetes. Are there different blood pressure numbers for folks with diabetes that we want to target? You know, the the guidelines have been kind of all over the place. American Heart Association, um, the American Diabetes Association. And really, the the lower you can tolerate, the better these days. And so when we talk about high blood pressure, again, that 120 over 80 is kind of our gold standard. When we get to the 120, 120 to 130 range or 80 to 90, then we start talking about prehypertension. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 130 to 140 is stage one hypertension. And then 140 or above in the systolic is stage two hypertension. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the criticisms was we got the blood pressure range uh, lower than for high blood pressure, but actually medicine's not the first line therapy for those 120 to 140s. And so we haven't put more people on blood pressure medicine. We're just trying to be more aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you haven't been to the doc in a while, those, just like you mentioned, those guidelines have been updated to kind of reflect the change in practice and the need to make sure that we're addressing high high blood pressure or hypertension um, early in folks. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have to put them on medication. We want to target all those lifestyle style factors that could be contributing to the blood pressure. And then if it continues to stay elevated, we progress on through the the algorithm that tells us when to add medicines and all of those different kinds of things there. Um, And, you know, one thing I want people to be aware of is if you have to go on blood pressure medicine, it doesn't mean you failed at a lifestyle changes or sometimes medications are just needed so you know we get you know 50 percent of what we do can't be changed it's in our genes it's in our family and we love our family but they pass on sometimes sometimes they give us things things that we don't love that's right and then 50 percent is you know things we can change Mm -hmm. and so um so in working as best you can with what you have where time you have permits but sometimes you do need medicine no matter how healthy you are yeah absolutely and that's that's not a, a failure there you know i see it a lot with people with diabetes when they have to go on insulin or medicines like that they see it like i'm doing what i'm supposed to do you know and sometimes that just it just happens there and, and that's the reason we have those medicines. that's the reasons we have those medicines right you know i get asked a lot since i do lifestyle medicine and my anti-medicine you know i'm like no medicines keep us alive you know but we don't want to just use medicines because let's say we have someone with high blood pressure right and we get them on blood pressure medicine and we get their blood pressure controlled the risk factors for high blood pressure, which may be you know, poor diet and not being active and stress and all these other things, if we don't 
also target those, then it's not just going to be high blood pressure that we're dealing with. It's going to be diabetes or high cholesterol or any of these other things because they they travel together. The risk factors are very, very similar across all of those metabolic conditions. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. John Vanderloo, and we are talking all about heart health, celebrating this February as American Heart Month. We spent the first segment talking about blood pressure and what those normal values are and what just what blood pressure is in general instead of just this kind of nebulous number that gets thrown out at you. And so if you don't know what your blood pressure is, I encourage you to have a conversation with your health care provider and write it down. You know, leave with, uh, with that number written down on a sheet of paper and what your goal should be um, so that you've got something to work toward um, in that respect. And I will say one of the other things is checking it at home too. So getting a home blood pressure monitor, bringing it to the doctor's office with you to make sure you're doing it right technique wise, making sure that their number corresponds to the number that you get and then checking it at home a couple times a week, not every day, not to be burdensome, but one time in the morning, one time after lunch, one time in the evening before you go to bed and keeping a log that way. Because there's a uh, one study actually showed that blood pressures only in doctor's offices can be actually higher than typical Mm -hmm. and can lead to overtreatment. Yeah, absolutely. Now I get a lot of email questions about home blood pressure monitors and the question I get asked most often is what about the wrist monitors and what are your, what are your thoughts about the wrist monitors? It's hard to say that quality is important, um, and one of the reasons we ask people to bring in their monitors to check them is because we want to make sure the quality. Yeah. So there is some question whether the wrist monitor is as accurate as the arm, the upper arm monitor, and so one of the best ways to know for sure is just bring it to your doctor's yeah. office. Yeah, sometimes we see it kind of overestimate blood pressure a little bit on the wrist just because the skin is thinner there, the vessels are closer to the surface, and the kind of the the tunnel that those blood pressure blood vessels are running through is na- is more narrow. So sometimes that'll make it a little bit high. But regardless of what type you're using, I wholeheartedly agree. Bring it in, let us check it against ours and see. Because if you're checking it at home and it's always normal 
and it's always high when you're in the office with your healthcare provider, but we can check your machine and know that it's that it's accurate, then I'm less concerned about that exactly. type of situation. So in the past, really the only option we had was to do like a 24-hour, you know, wear this blood pressure monitor thing around, and we still do that in, in some folks, uh, but this is a little less burdensome for people there um, on that. So I agree. That's an excellent tip there about monitoring it at home. But remember to bring your log when you come because I have a lot of patients who do a really great job of monitoring at home and then they leave it at home. Um, so you can take a snapshot of it with your phone before you leave, that kind of stuff. If or you, you don't want to keep it in your note section in your phone. I found that works really well. even better one there. Um, and and some, uh, some apps will let you log it in there as well. But however... However you prefer to do things. Um, I'm a paper and pen gal on that. My notes section in my phone gets uh, just gets forgotten about. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm just I'm old school a little bit that way. All right. I have another um, question that came in through my Facebook page. And so it says, uh, I find that when I walk more than a few blocks distance, my calf muscles feel like they're going to explode, right? And I think this is probably coming from the fact that we tell people to exercise, right? Exercise is good for heart health. But what if you're having this leg pain? Is it just uh, I'm out of shape? situation or is there something else going on there? Yeah, so you know, it's a there's a lot of factors in, in terms of exercise. We want to make sure that we're breathing right, we're we're getting enough blood to our muscles. One of the things if you have a lot of pain in your legs, a fancy word for that's called claudication. And really what that can be a, a symptom of is narrowing of the blood vessels mm-hmm. in your legs. And so what that's called is peripheral vascular disease or peripheral artery disease. And that means that the periphery or the outside of this the, you know, central um, is your heart and peripheral is, is your legs mostly, um, they can be narrowed. And such things, uh, high cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, they can all uh, lead to that and cause not enough blood flow. And so um, exercise actually is one of the treatments for that. Mm-hmm. But until you get the diagnosis, we probably need to make sure that that's what's going on. Right. And so if you think that's what's going on and you come to your healthcare provider, what what should you expect? Like, what's how do we diagnose that? So there is a test called the ankle brachial index, and what we do is we the ankle is your ankle, the brachium <laughs> is your arm, and the index is the ratio between the two. And so we look at the br- bl- the blood pressures. Um, sometimes it's as simple as just doing it with a blood pressure monitor, but a lot of times it's ultrasound guided mm-hmm. to get a really good uh, a number. And they can actually go all the way down to the toe. And so they can measure the difference in your blood pressure and a decrease in the number less than one um, is worrisome. And mm-hmm. when you get down to about 0.7, then we start talking about what we need to do. Right, right. And sometimes a surgical intervention can right. go in. They can kind of rotor-rooter the clog <laughs> and um, help you feel less better. Bust through there. Yeah, because there could be various things that are causing that that lowering of the, uh, or that differing of the pressure gradient there. But we want to make sure that it's not because those vessels are stopped up with exactly. stuff that needs to be removed out there. And when we talk about stuff that stops up the the blood vessels, what is that stopping it up? So, you know, sometimes a blood clot mm-hmm. can do it or a, or a chronic blood clot. So if you have a blood clot in your leg and then it doesn't heal well afterwards, it can build up fibrous tissue. Your body is can heal a lot of things, mm-hmm. but a lot of things it doesn't heal so well. And so it puts this thick uh uh, scar material in there, and it can kind of clog up the mm-hmm. problem. Diabetes can cause issues. So diabetes in and of itself, the sugar that can't be used is kind of like the work of the devil. It's idle mm-hmm. hands, and it gets into trouble. And so it preferentially targets blood pre- uh, blood vessels and nerves that are down 
And the weakest ones are the farthest away from your brain, and those are going to be your feet and your hands. Mm -hmm. Um, Smoking can cause it. So smoking uh, is a vasoconstrictor, and over time it can lead to uh, blockage of the arteries and things like that. And then kind of the other big thing to talk about when we talk about heart health and kind of atherosclerosis, which is a big big word. I think we just come up with big words to make ourselves feel important sometimes, but cholesterol Mm -hmm. um, plays a a role in that as well. And I think cholesterol is one of the... um, we call blood pressure a silent killer, but cholesterol is pretty, it's pretty, pretty good too. in there, too, because you don't you don't feel bad, no. you know, and you don't feel bad with high blood pressure either. And even early diabetes, you don't feel bad. So a lot of these, um, it's hard to get people to to go along with treatment because they don't feel bad. You know, when you've got the flu and you feel like stink, then, you know, you're like, what medicine can I take for that? Right. What do I need to do? What do I, can I drink? What you know, what make me feel better? But with all of these heart issues or medicine metabolic conditions that that can contribute to heart disease there's not a whole lot of symptoms on the front end to make you uh motivated to to take medicine or change lifestyle whatever the the case may be and that's why your annual checkup is so important because even when you're feeling well you still can have early signs of changes Mm -hmm. in these lab results yeah absolutely and you know we were talking before the show you know i consider myself to be healthier than most in terms of lifestyle in the way that I eat and my exercise patterns and sleep and all those different kinds of things. But at my annual checkup that I just had, my cholesterol stayed high. So it was high last year. And, you know, we made it, we made an agreement that, you know, because I was kind of vegetarian, vegetarian at the last one, I was like, I'm going to go completely vegan. And, you know, we'll see what what happens, right? Well, it was still high, you know? And so really from a lifestyle perspective, I've done all that I can can do um, for that. And so I had to bite the big statin bullet and go ahead and start taking my medication. And I'm okay with that. I made, I mean, I was a little sad. I had a little, I had a little cry, but you know, at the end of the day, it's about maintaining the organs that you have. And if exactly. that's what I have to do to do that, then that is um, what I want to do. Now, for all those listening going, well, she talks about plant-based diets all the time, and it didn't work for her. It has worked in other ways, I promise you. So my cholesterol actually is lower than it was last year. It's just not exactly where I want it to be. But my blood sugar tests are the best they've ever been. Uh, and my blood pressure and weight are the best that they've been in a very, very long time. So it, it is definitely working there. And lowering my risk for heart disease overall genetics unfortunately yeah so so that's my sweet mama and daddy um they they gifted me some cholesterol problems but that's (laughs) all right i still love them and i'll keep them around i'm dr josie bidwell associate professor of preventive medicine and nurse practitioner at the university of mississippi medical center thanks for listening to the southern remedy healthy and fit podcast if you have a question you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening 
Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. And joining me today, I have Dr. John Vanderloo, who is a family physician, um, also in the Jackson metro area. And we have been answering questions about heart disease today. And so if you have a question about your heart or about heart health or how you can lower your risk for heart disease, we would love to hear from you today. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. All right. Now, before the break, we've kind of spent some time on um, hypertension. We talked a little bit about atherosclerosis and we mentioned cholesterol levels. So tell me about cholesterol numbers. Is there a hard and fast rule for what a normal cholesterol is? So like any good scientific evidence, it changes over time. <laughs> right. And so at one point we wanted the cholesterol to LDL. So your cholesterol panel is made up of four main things and you have your total cholesterol, your triglycerides, your LDL, and your HDL. And ideally, you want your LDL as low as you can, you want your low, low, and your HDL as high as you can, or your high, high. HDL goes around, it's called a scavenger molecule, and it goes around and it gets extra cholesterol and takes it away from building up plaques. It's like and the mom trouble. picking up socks off That's the floor. That's right. Yep. And the LDL is the toddlers who are throwing the socks <laughs> all over the floor. So you want to cut down on the number of socks. Uh, you know, before it used to be less than 70 was kind of an ideal number. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, about 2015, 16, they went to a percent reduction. And so what they did was a fancy calculation about your blood pressure, your smoking, your race, your, uh, gender, your, um, comorbidities, diabetes, things like that. And they, they kind of risk stratified you and gave you a number about how likely you were to have Mm -hmm. a heart attack or stroke in 10 years. And you, and based on that and your, and your numbers, they said, okay, we need a strong statin to reduce your cholesterol by 50%. Right. And now we're kind of getting a little bit back to the numbers, um, but you know it's an individual, yeah, individual discussion. Your, individual discussion. That's right. But and you know the limitation with that risk stratification is most of the calculators to calculate that out only start at age forty, right. and uh, you know I'm not there yet, and so I'm unable to do a, a risk by by that particular uh, method there. So it was very much a, a uh, joint decision between myself and my provider to go ahead and start the medication there on that. Um, but again, that's having a conversation with your provider about what your numbers are. And in the bigger picture of things, your other health conditions, your family history, any symptoms you may have, all of that kind of stuff, whether it's it's time to start um, medication for your cholesterol on that. All right, we've got a couple of callers on the line. So I'm going to go ahead and go to South Haven and talk with Susan this morning. Hello, Susan. Good morning. Good morning. What can we do for you? Well, I was curious about uh, what causes the electrical system that uh, operates a heart muscle, what causes it to become uh, malfunctioning? Excellent question, Dr. Vanderly. So sometimes the size of your heart can cause the issue. So when your heart gets large from either uh, pumping against high blood pressure too long or um, uh, in those with alcohol uh, use can sort of get uh, a cardiomyopathy, and that just means bad heart, basically, Mm -hmm. bad heart muscle. Um, Sometimes it's a genetic thing where you have extra uh, wires that shouldn't be going somewhere, and in that case, which the cardiologist can go in and actually map the wires of your heart um, through your through your leg and go up to the heart, map the wires and say, look, this one doesn't need to be here. Let's cut it off. 
and, and get it back to normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually anything that, it, that makes the heart bigger uh, or the genetic predisposition can cause issues. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we see probably the most common kind of electrical arrhythmia we see, especially in the adult population, is atrial fibrillation. That's right. um, we see a lot. And so talk for just a second about what atrial fibrillation is. So normally when your heart beats in a, in a healthy person, the top two atria, that's the, the top of your heart and the ventricles are on the bottom, the atria uh, squeeze and then the ventricles squeeze. And, and when they squeeze, the blood from the top goes to the bottom, the blood from the bottom goes out to your heart or, I mean, to your lungs or to your body. And that's normal. Atrial fibrillation means that the electrical sim- uh, signals get kind of uh, messed up and it causes the top part of your heart to fibrillate or to shake, basically. Mm-hmm. And so the blood doesn't always get, or the, the electricity doesn't always get from the top to the bottom like it should. And sometimes when it shakes like that, too many electrical impulses get to the bottom and that makes your heart race like crazy and yeah. you don't get enough blood out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it can also increase your risk for clots because if that That's right. the blood's not getting through like it's supposed to, it kind of sits there and gets a little gooier mm-hmm. than we would like for it to. And then when it finally does eject, it can can throw a clot that way. So that's why a lot of people with atrial fibrillation, even if we never get their rate controlled where we want it to, we have them on blood thinners. That's right, because uh, that to. clot can go to your lungs and block blood to your lungs and, and cause a pulmonary embolism, or it can go up to your brain and, call, and block blood to your brain and cause a stroke. Absolutely. All right, Susan, did that help you out there? Uh, not really. Oh, what you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to help you out. What can we help you out with some more? Well, can a chemical imbalance in your brain affect the electrical system controlling your heart? Not that I'm aware of, but I, I never say never because, you know, we we don't know what we don't know sometimes. Right. But not that I'm aware of. Now, sometimes uh, medications can yeah. cause issues with, with – um, so if you're on a certain medication, it could possibly cause issues. Yeah, if you're, like, on a medication for a, a you know brain issue, the, one of the side effects of that could be some abnormal electrical impulses through the heart there. And, of course, anxiety can cause the sensation. Yes. So if you are anxious about things, it can make your heart race. It can give you uh, what's called palpitations, and that can make uh, you sense the your heartbeat, and that can uh, make you feel like you're having an, a normal heartbeat when yeah. it may very well just be ba- fast because you're anxious about right, something. Right, because you got a little adrenaline release there. Well, well what I had was uh, I have a pacemaker now, uh-huh. and doctors were all surprised about it because, um, of course, I you know never smoke, don't have high cholesterol, right. don't have high blood pressure, a very healthy diet. But I had a massive uh, uh, toxic chemical exposure for over a two-year period. Wow. It's as to whether exposure to uh, volatile organic compounds, glutaraldehyde, mm-hmm. whether that could disrupt brain chemistry and result in now I have a pacemaker. Wow. You know, I've not heard that before. And it may not be the brain chemistry. If it, if it potentially could disrupt brain chemistry, could disrupt the chemistry right, of the heart muscle. Right, chemistry of the heart well. muscle is what kind of I was going for there. But that's definitely an interesting one, Susan. And I'm going to, the next time I see one of my cardiology friends, I'm going to pick their brain about that as well. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Susan. All right, we'll go over to Olive Branch and talk with Renee. Good morning, Renee. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, we're doing just fine. What can we help you with? Well, I've often heard that an antioxidant-rich diet is good for heart health 
that it helps with free radicals. Mm-hmm. I'm a little confused on how the free radicals and the heart health is, and I was just wondering if you and your co-host could explain free radicals a little bit more in detail. Yeah. Sure. So oxygen in the atmosphere and what we breathe in likes to be a buddy. It likes to have a twin to it, and that's why it's called O2, because oxygen likes to stay together. When we have a chemical reaction in our in our body that causes free radicals, it's just like that. Anything radical is going to probably get into trouble. <laughs> and so free radicals are that lone oxygen that likes to be paired up with its buddy. And so what it does is it goes through the body and it looks for ways to destruct things so that it can find a buddy. Mm-hmm. And so when we do antioxidants, what that does is that helps us bind those, that extra oxygen looking for a pal and um, play Cupid and mm-hmm. put it back together so mm-hmm. it doesn't cause trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And so antioxidant-rich diets uh, do, in fact, help with those things. Uh, you know, when you, and then you go, well, where the heck do antioxidants live? You know, and so they do live mostly in plant-based foods. And so that's one of the reasons behind the advice to kind of eat the rainbow and to eat a variety of really bright-colored um, foods. Uh, actually, bite for bite, one of the most antioxidants oxidant rich foods out there is uh, purple cabbage actually um, so it's really good for that but blueberries and you know any of the dark berries so your strawberries raspberries those are very good as well um, when I'm working with uh, patients who have maybe an autoimmune issue or something where we've got a lot of underlying inflammation then we really start talking about food swaps, right? So if we're going to use onions in something, then we switch out a purple onion for the white onion because that purple onion is going to have more um, of that antioxidant in it there. But for your average person who's just wanting to add some antioxidants into their diet, um, the berries are really one of the easiest places to do that. And I usually recommend a half a cup of berries um, or a quarter of a cup of dried berries every day um, if you can do that. And I keep mine in the freezer so they don't spoil because those strawberries, man, those suckers will go down um, as soon as as you bring them home. (laughs) It seems like they start to go by the wayside. Uh, So I hope that helps you out a little bit there. And I'm uh, happy to answer any more questions you have about an anti-inflammatory diet if you want to send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. All right, we'll go ahead and go to our uh, last caller who's hanging on for us. This is Ed in Jackson. Good morning, Ed. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I had a CT with contrast of my heart two weeks ago and saw a university physician last week, and I'm scheduled for a um, nuclear stress test next week. Uh, But stupidly, I forgot to ask the doctor, the difference between uh, calcification and plaque, I have uh, moderate to severe calcification in my LAD, and I uh, was, I just meant to ask him the difference, and I didn't. So can I have a difference? So, sure. Uh, so plaque um, it shows up on a lot of t- on the CT scan as, as calcium. So when, when a plaque starts, it gets layered and layered and layered, almost like a butterfinger, and it gets calcified, and that's what shows up calcium is in our bones and so when we do a a ct that's basically a bunch of x-rays all together and so it looks for things that are have calcium in them and so uh that so it'll show the plaques uh as calcium and so basically they're synonymous in that Mm -hmm. in that way um and when you do a nuclear stress test so there's kind of two forms of stress tests what stress test does is exactly that it stresses the heart muscle so if you think about lakeland drive at uh, (laughs) two in the morning there is no stress you drive 
clearly and you're fine. Is that when I'm supposed to be going down yes. Lakeland Drive? Yes. Darn. But if you think about it at seven to eight or, or five to six, that puts a stress test on the road and you can see where the problems are. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing with your heart. So if you have, you know, little, few risk factors, you can do a treadmill stress test. And that's basically you get on a treadmill and you run or walk until you um, meet the, the requirements or you have to stop for pain. And a nuclear stress test does that for you without having to get on a treadmill. Right, right. So people who have mobility issues or things like that, we may opt for the nuclear stress test there. All right, Ed, was that helpful? Very much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for giving us a call today. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. Joining me in the studio today, I have Dr. Vanderloo, who's a family physician, and we've been answering lots of great questions about uh, heart health since it is February. It is American Heart Month, and we've had a lot of great callers as well as emails coming in about that. And so I'm going to go straight over to this email that we just got. It says, what would be a reason or a condition that would cause a doctor to tell a patient in their early 50s not to do any exercise at all? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I know. I don't think we have enough information <laughs> to answer that. Um, you know, I'm usually of the the notion that almost anyone can be exercised to some extent. Exactly. Um, now, there are plenty of people that I don't just turn loose in the gym um, for various reasons. You know, it may be that they've had um, you know, back surgeries, neck surgeries, those kinds of things, and have lots of plates and screws and things in there that we've got to be very careful with, or that have, you know, cervical stenosis or, you know, something that's going to cause nerve impingement if we do things wrong. Um, if we have an undiagnosed uh, lung issue, you know, like we've got a shortness of breath that we haven't been able to figure out the, the cause for, um, or we're working up maybe this leg pain situation, all of those things are going to give me pause as to to exercising right now right and maybe it's short term until we get to the reason right until we figure it out so that we can build build the correct exercise program and you know what i do with a lot of folks is start them in physical therapy um working with our physical therapists to make sure that the movements that they're doing just in their everyday life, that they're, they're doing them correctly, right? We're bending over so not to put extra strain on our back and, you know, doing all these different kinds of things, getting their leg muscles nice and strengthened up and then moving them into a, you know, a community exercise program or what we run, you know, a medically integrated fitness program uh, there. But I mean, we even do exercise on people, you know, 
post heart attack. You know, we did cardiac rehab there. So um, unfortunately, I don't think we can answer why this individual person might have been told not to exercise at all. But in my clinic and probably in your clinic, it's it's only if we're still working it up, right, to exactly. figure out what what it would be and then what very specific limitations we would put on on the exercise there. Sometimes it's I don't want your heart rate to get above a certain amount or I don't want you to lift over a certain amount. Those folks I tend to put in the pool mm-hmm. um, so that we are a little less intense but still get the benefits of resistance training there. All right, we're going to go on over and talk to Homer. Good morning, Homer. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for calling us back. We had some technical difficulties. What can we do for you today? I think it was modern technology, the phone drop. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> Probably so. You know, modern technology. Uh, um, you got to love it. What, what in, in you all's opinion, what is two of the most beneficial things that a person can do for heart health? And what is two of the most detrimental things mm. that a person could do? A heart here. Ooh, Homer, those are such good questions. <laughs> I, you're open to can of worms because I could talk all day on that, but I'll turn it over to Dr. Vanderloo and let him. So, you know, two of the best things we can do is, uh, I mean, we, we talked about it already, but exercise mm-hmm. and eating right. I might add a third, smoking cessation. Yeah. If you're smoking, quit as soon as you can. It's hard. It's a beast. It's on your back. There's help out there. There's counseling. There's there's supplementation with nicotine. There is medicine that can help you with that. Um, just do yourself a favor. And I tell my small kids the best way to stop is to never start. Never so, start. Yeah. So don't pick them yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and so uh, two of the worst things: sitting still and eating junk. Yeah. And, and smoking. Yeah. So yeah. three for three. three. And you know, I'll piggyback on that. That when we talk about what not to eat. Uh, in terms of heart health, really, if we if I can get people to stop eating one thing, it's processed meat. You know, so you know if you're going to continue to you know eat you know chicken and fish and you know lean cuts of meat, fine. But your processed meats that are full of a lot of different preservatives and tons of salt and sodium are just really not helping um, anybody's heart health and their waistline as well. So, you know, cutting back on those deli meats and those, um, you know, bacons and, and those kinds of things, which I know gets gets me a lot of ugly faces mm-hmm. when I tell people that because people love bacon. Um, but, you know, cutting that out really does uh provide help in terms of reducing sodium content, reducing saturated fat. And then actually back to the caller earlier who asked about the free radicals and antioxidant diets, those processed meats do tend to cause more inflammation than than your non-processed meats out there. And then poor sleep. You know, I think yeah, sleep a is a point. completely and underrated, stress. absolutely underrated um, part of health. And I cannot tell you the number of people who, you know, come to my clinic for lifestyle help with, you know, maybe heart disease or diabetes or just losing weight. And every single person gets a sleep evaluation, you know, sleep screen when they come in, because I'm looking for two things. I'm looking for duration. You know, are we sleeping the appropriate number of hours and then quality? You know, are we getting good restful sleep? And 
so many are, are not feeling rested in the mornings. And so we start to look a little bit deeper and they've got obstructive sleep apnea, you know? And so uh, if your brain is starving of oxygen during the night, then that's going to put extra stress on your heart. So we did not give you two. We gave you lots because uh, <laughs> they are all very, very, very important. Um, but start with just knowing your risk. And so you can actually go to the American Heart Association website. You can type in um, seven life habits i think that's what it's called and there's a little like online screening tool that you can do that will tell you what your risk is based on um the the metrics that you put in there what your blood pressure is and all that stuff and so then you can take that to your healthcare provider and discuss the results that way so i hope that helps you out a little bit there homer and that was a fantastic question today All right. So we got um, a couple of emails in as well. And one asked about aspirin. And so what should you do uh, if you think you're having a heart attack? Do we chew aspirin? Yes. (laughs) That one we can answer (laughs) affirmatively. Yes. Now, the big question then is how much? Because there's baby aspirins that are 81 milligrams, and then there are your traditional 325 aspirins. Right. So you want to chew a 325 aspirin, and you chew it because it gets it in, dissolves it quicker, gets it in the system quicker. It stops the platelets from sticking together if you think you're having a heart attack. You call 911 yes. and chew an aspirin. Now, what if you only have baby aspirins? Can you chew several of you those? You can chew several of them, eight of them. Eight of roughly. them. Wow. That's delicious. Okay, that's going to taste terrible. That is going to taste terrible the for a while. The reason there's different sizes of aspirin is because one of the side effects is GI bleeds. Mm. And so aspirin's kind of like a lead weight you swallow, but it goes right down to the lining of your stomach and can erode through the stomach. So for a long time, aspirin was an amazing drug. It was an anti-inflammatory, so it helped with pain. It was it heart healthy because it kept platelets from sticking together and causing blood clots mm-hmm. and causing heart attacks or strokes, but it caused a lot of GI bleeds. And so they have a baby aspirin, which is 81 milligrams, and that's sort of the sweet spot to keep the, platelet, the platelets from sticky sticking together when they're not supposed to and from keeping your stomach safe. Right, absolutely. And it's kind of a misnomer to call it a baby aspirin because do not give aspirin to your babies. Correct, that nobody is, under 12. That is not a good thing, right? That can ha- cause some bad situations, some bad rise syndrome and those kinds of things. So, um, but absolutely. Now, the other question that I get a lot is who should take a baby aspirin on a daily basis? And so, you know, there's been, again, with our scientific research, changes in those. We used to think that everybody who had diabetes would need it. Um, we, we know that people with clotting disorders like atrial fibrillation, sometimes that's the only thing they need if, mm-hmm. if they have no other risk factors except for that. But then again, there's a calculator. Uh, if you do have atrial fibrillation, discuss with your doctor, whether you have high blood pressure, heart failure, uh, diabetes, things like that. Um, and so, you know, there, there's some debate. We've, we know that 81 milligrams is kind of the sweet spot. And so if you're ever in doubt, you could always start it before you talk to your physician. Um, but aspirins, you know, is, it does have a lot of benefits. Long-term use can actually cut down on colon cancer, mm-hmm. uh, which is a benefit if you use it over 10 years, if you have a high risk of colon cancer. Uh, but again, you know, there's, it's not 100% benign medicine. So we just want to take that into consideration. Yeah, and always tell us. Like because it's an over-the-counter medicine, a lot of times people leave that off of their medicine list. Right. Um, when you're reporting medicines, please tell your healthcare provider all the things that you're taking, any supplement, any herb, anything. We're not going to get mad at you. We just want to know what it is because... Even relatively benign things that we think of, like garlic and ginger and those kinds of things, can interact with some medications, can change your bleeding times and all those different things. So we just want to know about those so we can give you the best advice there. Um, Now, I do briefly want to 
touch on those statins because we never circled back around to that. But statins are a class of medication for cholesterol. They're well proven, um, but people still are a little hesitant to start statins. Tell me what the dangers are, if any. So statins are a class of medication best known probably as Lipitor or Crestor. Um, those are the main the main brand names. Um, long lots of lots of data that shows not only does it lower your cholesterol, your numbers in your blood, but if you do have any of those pesky plaques that are already built up, it can actually firm them up and kind of keep Stabilize them from them. exactly keep them from breaking off and causing heart attacks or stroke. So it is a great medicine. It's proven to decrease your sickness and decrease your risk of death. But it's not the only one out there. Uh, one of the big side effects are muscle aches, particularly in your big muscle groups like your thighs. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, if you talk to your doctor about it, you can start, you know, a lot of times you have five minutes to do a hundred things in your doctor's office. And so if you talk to him about it and you take time to explain it, you maybe start a lower dose mm-hmm. and work your way up slowly yeah. so that you get used to it better. Yeah. Um, it's usually reversible. So if you do have some issues with the, with uh, muscle aches, then you can stop the medicine. Um, there's a new medicine. Uh, it's an injectable mm-hmm. for those with a huge family history and they already have heart disease. Talk to your doctor about that. But then there are a couple supplements that have been uh, shown to decrease um, uh, cholesterol. They don't have quite the rigorous data behind it. You know, a lot of the um, conspiracy theorists will say, you know, big pharma is out there to make money. And they are. But (laughs) in order to do that, they do high-quality studies on a lot of medicines. And so when you talk about supplements, they don't always have those kind of high-quality supplements that we get from pharma. But two big ones are turmeric. It's the the yellow curry powder. and uh, if you mix it with black pepper, get the, they get the capsules that have turmeric with black pepper. It helps it absorb better. And then garlic is mm-hmm. a supplement that you can take, too. Mm-hmm. And so those lower your cholesterol. We don't know for sure long term how they do with the plaques. But, again, if you're totally intolerant of statins and you tried your best and you can't do it, something's better than nothing. Absolutely. And I'm definitely on the turmeric train. I, I have some every day. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.